podcast one production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this special mini-series, we're sticking to home soil to discover some of the greatest export success stories taking place right here in Australia. Exporting can expose your business to a wealth of opportunities, but as we'll soon find out, there are some tricks and tips to getting it right. So in each of these six episodes, I'll speak to small businesses right across the country to find out how they've achieved their success overseas and what you can do to ensure your own. When I was the chief economist at Austrade, I spent a lot of time in China. Then one day I got an email that said, congratulations, you've won a fully paid for all expenses trip to South Korea and Japan. Well, I was a little bit surprised and a bit suspicious, but then I read on. This is not spam, this is Greg Dodds. I want you to do for South Korea and Japan what you've been doing for China. Well, Greg Dodds was the Northeast Asia head honcho at work, and he sent me on a fact-finding media tour of two wonderful countries, South Korea and Japan. It was a real contrast. Japan was very polite and reserved, had a great emphasis on presentation and hygiene. The place worked like clockwork. The trains really ran on time to the second, and I mean the second. And the very nice, polite taxi drivers with the white gloves on drove you around. Japan had been at or near the top of the world economic table since the late 60s, and it really showed in how they treated visitors. By contrast, South Korea was very different. It was a place in a hurry. In the 60s, after the damage wrought by the Korean War, the place was much poorer. In fact, it was poorer than a lot of African nations. But after the Korean economic miracle, it actually had joined the OECD and had become a donor of foreign aid. From a poor country in the 60s to one of the world's wealthiest in about 30 years, a remarkable story. This transformation from pauper to economic powerhouse is really a testament to the industriousness of Koreans. They call it the bully bully or hurry hurry culture, very fast paced. And many commentators have said that it's a land of aspiration, perspiration and inspiration, very different to the politeness and reserve of Japan. But despite this difference in style, South Korea and Japan have one thing in common. They both love Australian produce, particularly in food and wine. As both economies have become more affluent and the middle class has grown, their tastes have become much more international. And that's been very good news for Australian premium food exporters. Well, joining me now is one of those very exporters, the Managing Director of Australian Honey Products and a proud Tasmanian, Lindsay Burke. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. So how did you become a beekeeper? Was it in the family? No, it wasn't. I just started. I was a wool classer and uh, working on many properties and listening to the bee stories, which were very interesting. And um, I started with bees because I thought, well, I'm only a young fellow with no money, uh, renting a flat. Once I get enough money to buy a property, I'll be able to take my bees with me. So that's how I started. So it's very mobile and um, Tasmanian honey is the best in the world. So you're in the perfect place. We're very fortunate here uh, when it doesn't dry out too much, but very fortunate. Yesterday I had a wonderful day. It was 10 hours. I picked up bees from a place called Greens Beach where they were starving and took them all the way down 
to the east coast to get onto the ironbarks. And it was so hot, you wouldn't believe it. For us in Tasmania, over 30 degrees, it actually got to 35. No, it's a heat wave in Tasmania, isn't it? It was for us. And is, is that why Tasmanian honey is the best in the world? Is it partly the climate that you have? It's not as dry as the mainland? Part of the climate and the varieties, because we are the original place that Manuka grew and we produce Manuka honey from all of the Manuka trees that we have. And uh, the most active ones are in our pristine rainforest, the Tarkine and places like that. And then we get our leatherwood, and our leatherwood is so unique. It's just the most wonderful honey. Four years ago, it won the title of the best honey in the whole world at the World Honey Awards, which happen every two years. That happened in South Korea. It's a wonderful honey, and we get a lot more money for our products than our friends on the mainland do from their beautiful eucalypts. So you started off as a young, young Lindsay, as a beekeeper in your 20s. When did you sort of start exporting and looking beyond our shores, beyond Tasmania? Well, I started uh, approximately 1975 when I took advantage of the Australian government's export incentive drive. And that was if we could sell anything or more than we'd sold before, they would give us a 15% bonus. From the government? From the government. So I went over there with my honeys and my honey meads and things, and I didn't get an export licence. When I got over there to my horror... I found out that it was 300% import duties into South Korea. This was in South... Seoul was where you started, wasn't it? You started yes, your export yes, drive. Yes, that's right. So I went to the Australian Embassy there and and uh, they helped me uh, with contacts and things. So that wasn't successful. I went back 18 months later and had another go at it, uh, but it still wasn't successful. And I was only a small beekeeper. I could only produce 15 tonnes of... Honey, you know, that's really small. Today we produce in between 200 and 250 tonnes of honey, so it makes it more worthwhile. So was it accidental or planned? I mean, did you just see, you know, this government program advertised so you thought you'd give exporting a go or did you always plan to sell your honey outside Tasmania, outside Australia? Well, well, I'd been selling it to other beekeepers that were exporting it, and I thought I'd get this because it would be a a good business deal to be able to do something like that. So, you know, I planned to do it, but I wasn't successful there, but we started back again. I had a few years off after that, and then I started again in uh, 2003, in 2007, we started exporting once again successfully this time. What was different about the third go compared to the first two? The third go, we got a lot more advice from the Australian government and talked to other people that had been exporting. We had good premises and we had more volume, better labels and everything else that was positive. And the Australian government helped us bring people here to us and we went over there to talk to possible clients. So that was the difference. Now, what markets do you export to now as well as South Korea? Just about everywhere. China was their largest one until recently. Uh, But we sell to Japan, Indonesia, lots and lots of countries, even Lebanon. Um, They love our honey. And we even export bees to Canada, uh, live bees at the end of our honey season. So we sell everywhere. In fact, three years ago, we were lucky enough to win a national export 
Award. That was for agriculture. Fantastic. So you actually sell the honey and the bees and the mead and so on. Do you find some markets tougher than others? You know, is Korea tougher than Japan or China or compared to the Middle East? Yes, well, Korea is a different one. I mean, my wife is from South Korea. I'd actually met her in the Australian Embassy. She was a local working there. But, uh, you know, even for us it's a little bit hard because they don't have um, uh, an agreement with Australia. There is an agreement in there, but they're nationals by a, a tender for a quota. And when they get that quota, they've got to pay for that, cost them money, and then they can import honey from Australia. It's pretty well controlled. That's the only only product that wasn't in the free trade agreement with South Korea. Have those free trade agreements with South Korea and Japan and China helped you as a honey exporter? Oh, my word, they have, because it makes it easier for their honey buyers to buy it from us. And, um, you know, we do charge a fair bit of money for our good honey because we can get them that money for it. So it's quite expensive for them. Some of those countries actually produce the cheapest honey in the world, and yet they import very expensive honey from us. So it's premium, what you export is premium because the middle class is growing in Korea and so on, so they want the good stuff. They do. If they can afford to buy the best, they do. Um, they buy it for, not only for their children and their husbands, but for themselves as well. And what's some of the challenges that you would face in an Asian market, say, that you may not face in Australia? Well, you wouldn't believe that we're having lots of problems with China. China have sent back honey from lots of our exporters. They're looking for any reason to reject it that they can. Uh, You know, it's just not a a free trade with them anymore. Uh, So that's something we've got to work at. Uh, China's pretty tough. We don't know whether it's a trade war with other things that are affecting us or they're just being picky but you've got to really try and pick the ports that you go to and you've got to have confidence in the person that's buying the honey from you and knows their way around their system to be able to import honey into China. So the trade war between China and President Donald Trump, that has sort of been impacting you even indirectly, it seems. Yes, there is something out there that uh, we're not privy to that uh, they don't want to buy Australian honey anymore. What about other challenges like exchange rates? Does that affect you uh, when the Australian dollar moves around? Oh, yes, it does. So it's wonderful for us at the moment. I mean, when it was a lot higher, it was a bit more difficult and and people would be trying to get us to drop the price a little bit. But, you know, it's not too bad at the moment. So that makes a lot of difference. You're a pretty brilliant marketer, Lindsay. I've seen you in action. (laughs) Does your marketing strategy differ overseas compared to Australia? Um, yes, because you see, they're, especially Asians, they look for labels. They don't buy good things just because you tell them. They want, they want to buy a shirt or anything else that's got a label on it. And they do like awards and things like that. Well, we've won a number of them. We're very pleased to do it. And uh, just like the wines, we put a gold medal on our labels and it makes a lot of difference to an Asian consumer. So the presentation and the fact that you've won awards, it's sort of prestigious, it builds your reputation in, in a market in Asia. It definitely does. It makes all the difference. So, Lindsay, the government badge has clearly been important in your export story. 
How does it work for, you know, exporters across all industries? How do you actually go to the government when you're going overseas? Well, you've got to contact the Department of Trade and they'll recommend people. They'll come and see you and give you advice. They have seminars on exporting. They'll even go overseas with you. On uh, trade missions. On trade missions and things. It's wonderful. In fact, our Tasmanian government is doing another one at the moment and our Premier is going over there, leading the delegation. And I think that's wonderful. We're working really hard in Tasmania and having a lot of success. So if you're in China or Korea, Japan, and you turn up as an exporter and you're there with the, with the Premier or the Trade Minister or the Ambassador... That's a pretty good look, isn't it, as a business? It sure is. It makes makes an impression on your prospective customers. So there's grants and assistance at home, like export market development grants when you're at home, and then when you go overseas, if you go along on one of these government trade missions, you're going to... You know, you're going to do well offshore because of the appearance that you're close to government. Yes, and if you go on your own as well, uh, part of that is paid by the government as long as you've got all the paperwork to satisfy the things, Um, but they will help you, uh, assist you to find markets. And, of course, going to the Australian Embassy in Seoul like you did, uh, you're actually on the ground in, in Seoul or in Beijing. There's actually the Australian government there on the ground and the state governments and so on. Definitely, and they have, uh, sometimes they have locals live there uh, who can find contacts for you and help and assist you develop what you're trying to do. And do you take advantage of government assistance like the Export Market Development Grant Scheme, for instance? Yes, we do. One year we go to Hong Kong for HOFEX, and the next year we go to Singapore. They're really wonderful opportunities for us to put ourselves out there and uh, Lots of those schemes are often, they really do help us uh, get our lines out in the markets. Now, how are you involved in the local community and the local industry in Launceston? I mean, beekeepers are pretty popular, aren't they, generally? <laughs> You're pretty useful for other, other farmers, aren't you, really? Well, it was a great announcement made by the Minister for Agriculture. The Australian government's just put in $1.5 million into the beekeeping industry to help us because they realise the uh, how important it is for, for pollinating and, and agriculture. So the entire Australian industry is only worth $100 million, but we pollinate a $14 billion worth of Australian crops. So vital. So it's not that just that the beekeeping industry needs help, it's more that the knock-on effects you have for other agriculture, that's where the benefit is. Yes, that's why we've got to keep our hives very healthy and look after them and make sure that we don't get varroa destructor. And we've got to keep our markets too, Tim. Um, The agriculture minister told me that there's a little bit of light in the tunnel with our trade conflict that we're having with our close neighbours, our friends, our New Zealanders, who unfortunately... this is Manuka, is it? Yes, it is, Manuka. Manuka, sorry. That's all right. So it is. Queen Ma- says Manuka, doesn't she? Or Manuka? Well, people from Canberra call it Manuka. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? You're the exporter. It's Manuka. I'll take Manuka. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're having a little Manuka war. It's unfortunate, really, because New Zealand and Australia combined won't be able to satisfy the world with active Manuka honey. But uh, some people in New Zealand are trying to capitalise on all of that and shut us out of markets. They've tried it in Great Britain at the moment, and we're appealing against that, and they're trying it in China at the moment. They're trying to keep Australians 
with Manuka out of that country. And it's sad, really, because we should be working together, not against each other. Do you think that generally as an exporter, not just in honey, but in other industries, if you band together as an industry, it's much smarter than, you know, dog eat dog in terms of exporting? Definitely. That's so silly to be uh, competing with each other because combined, New Zealand and Australia will be struggling to satisfy the whole world once they realise how good Manuka honey is. So we should be working together, not against each other. Interesting, isn't it? You know, on this program we had uh, an American company trying to stop someone using the word Bondi, as in Bondi Beach. So <laughs> the New Zealanders stopping us to use Manuka or Manuka. There you go. Yes, I don't know how the Chinese will think of that because they did take the Chinese gooseberry and turn it into kiwi fruit. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes, well, <laughs> the Italians did take noodles from China and make it into spaghetti. So we, we all borrow from somewhere that we can. <laughs> we do. Now, Lindsay, you've been very successful as a young fellow who never had beekeeping in his family. You've built this amazing, successful export industry from Tasmania. What advice would you give to first-time exporters starting out, even ones who aren't in the, in the honey industry? Well, I've got to talk to the government because they will help them and talk to other exporters as well. It's very important that you learn the ropes and, and don't make costly mistakes on your way. And, of course, they've got to give a really good product. It's got to be squeaky clean and, uh, you know, and tick all the boxes and they've got to look after their customers. Their customers, you know, they become your friends and you've got to look after your customers and make sure you consistently give good products and tick all the boxes and make sure you get the paperwork right because they'll reject it on tiny little minute irregularity. So you've got to get it really correct. Lindsay Burke, thank you. Thanks very much, Jim. Well, that's it for this edition of The Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt, and I'm the Airport Economist.